Hope you didn't close your Bible. If you did, please turn with me to Job 32. Again, I apologize for whatever degree uh, I might be a distraction through my cold this morning. You know, there are certain things that you do as a pastor to prepare uh, when you have a cold and you know you're going to be getting into the pulpit. You bring in cough drops is one of them, um, tissues as well. Uh, but cough drops is very important. And, and I found something out over these past couple of times. See, my wife and I have two bags of cough drops in the cabinet, and I don't know why uh, we, we don't get rid of one of them. Uh, we have cough drops, and then we have those vitamin C drops. And the cough drops I found to be more helpful as far as clearing me out. But those cough drops were cough drops that we brought from Florida when we lived there um, nearly two years ago now. And the problem with Florida is it's very humid. And in Florida, I, literally, I would have a closed, sealed bag of cough drops. And when I opened it, the humidity had melted the wrappers into all of the cough drops. It's just so humid there. And this bag of cough drops that we've got from Florida, I grab the cough drops every time, and then all throughout the service, I'm trying to peel the wrapper off of the cough drop. And so I've, I've peeled, I've pre-peeled three cough drops this morning so that I don't have to try to peel them while I'm preaching. That's very distracting for you, very difficult for me as well to stay on task. Um, but I've got my cough drops ready, and we're going to make it through this. So thank you for bearing with me. Um, more so than even you normally do, and I appreciate that. Job 32 this morning. Title of the sermon, Wisdom About Wisdom. If uh, you didn't get a sheet, a notes sheet, and you would like one, they are on the back table. Feel free to grab one of those um, to follow along. I, I try to be clear and structured so that you can follow along without it, but if that helps you, um, we do offer that. You know, over these past many weeks, the topic of wisdom has come up quite a bit. I told you that Troy preached uh, just two weeks ago on this concept of wisdom. Job has spoken about wisdom many times in his morning series. Jesus has taught wisdom in the John series. And yet, as we get to Job 32 this morning, there's more to learn. And as we're going to get to Job 33 and 34 and 35 and 36 and 37, there's going to be even more to learn still about wisdom. And then in 38, things get really exciting because that's when God speaks. And that's when wisdom is going to be not just heard, but wisdom will speak for himself. And so I'm very excited about that. We're going to keep hearing about wisdom. And you know, as you think about us as Christians, we talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning, about knowing God, about being disciples of Jesus Christ. We recognize that we as Christians are a little bit different from the world around us. Now, I don't mean different necessarily in the way we look, or those sorts of things, although that is possible, depending on the context and situation. But we do, in fact, have differences, do we not? We have different priorities in our lives. We have different moral standards that we keep. We have a different purpose in our lives. We have a different hope, a different expectation. We are looking toward and looking for something different. We have, as it were, a, a direction to our lives that those around us do not have. But for all the ways that we are different as Christians, we're still very human, aren't we? We still have all of those tendencies and characteristics that make up a human being. We still fear. We still worry. 
we still are emotional, we still need love, we still need companionship, we still need interaction. And you know, one of those things, and we talked about it this morning in Sunday school, that is a human tendency, is the tendency to judge when it is not our place to do so. The tendency to compare ourselves among ourselves, to seek ways to justify our own actions by putting down the actions of others. We tend to break sin into easily definable categories based upon our own understanding. And so that if we lie, we say, well, that's not as big of a deal as if I cheat or if I steal. If we do one thing, it's not as big of a deal as the other. If I do a small sin, it's not as big of a deal as if I do a big sin. As long as I'm not as bad as that person, I'm okay. That person's doing this, and I'm only doing that, so I must be okay because I'm not as bad as that person. We do this all the time. We compare ourselves among ourselves in order to justify the things that we're doing. We talked in Sunday school this morning, sin loves company. When I was in, I was public schooled, and when I was in uh, high school, it was a fairly affluent area, and designer drugs were the big thing. And you know, these designer drugs were very expensive. But for all of the expense that these designer drugs incurred, I never saw anybody who was not willing to share them. Because sin loves company. If someone's doing something wrong, they want to bring others along with them. Why? Because they don't feel as bad about doing it if someone else is doing it too. Because we feel less guilty if other people are doing bad things too. Because then I can compare myself with them and say, well, I'm not as bad as them. 2 Corinthians 10.12 tells us this, For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. There's that word wisdom. What's Paul saying there? He's saying a man that measures himself against another man, or a man who compares himself to another man, is not wise. Because what is our standard? As believers, we know the standard. As believers, we have embraced the standard, and it's not me versus you. It's not you versus me. It's not you versus you. It's not you versus you. It's not us versus anyone, really. It's me as compared to the Word of God. I look into the Word of God, and James says, as I look into the perfect law of liberty, he describes it as a mirror. And when we look into the Word of God, we see ourselves for who we really are. The Word of God shows us in our sin. The Word of God shows us in our failings. The Word of God shows us in our weaknesses. We see ourselves for who we are when we look into the Word of God, and then when we see that, we are to respond by looking to God. Job's going to learn some of that. Elihu is going to speak on some of that this morning from Job 32. Three pearls of wisdom regarding the nature of wisdom. This is, this is really wisdom on wisdom. 
Elihu is going to be speaking about wisdom, and he's giving wisdom about wisdom. And so we would do well to take some of this wisdom and apply it to our hearts this morning. And let's look at these things together. Our first pearl of wisdom this morning, justify God, not yourself. This is one that we've seen many, many times in the book of Job. This is not going to be anything new necessarily. But you know, it's one of those things when when you become a pastor and you begin preaching verse by verse, what you find is that the Bible repeats itself a lot. And a pastor can do one of two things. He can always look for something new to preach, or he can recognize that the reason why the Bible repeats things is because the Bible knows that we need things repeated. And if, if the Bible repeats it, it's probably because the Bible knows that we need it to hear it again and again and again to get it into our heads. Anyone who's raised kids knows that repetition is pretty important. I'm going to give a positive example of my girls this morning. A lot of times I'll talk about their discipline issues. Let's do a positive example with my girls this morning. Yesterday, my little girl, Alethea, she's, she's mending much better than Karis. Karis is very ill this morning. Alethea is on the mend. So Alethea was awake. Karis was still napping yesterday. And so I got a little one-on-one time with Alethea. And I've been asking her during this one-on-one time, Alethea, where's your nose? And she'll go like this. Where's your ears? And she'll go like this. And I'll say, where's daddy's ears? And she'll grab my ears. Where's daddy's chin? And she'll touch my chin. And I said, Alethea, where's your elbow? I hadn't taught her elbow yet. She looked at me and she said, oboe. I said, yeah, where's your elbow? She didn't know where her oboe was. And so I said, elbow, elbow. And then I pointed to hers, elbow. Elbow. And she goes, elbow. Yeah, elbow. And so I'd go through the list again. Where's your nose? Where's your ears? Where's your chin? Alethea, where's your elbow? And she'd go, elbow. So yeah, elbow. 30 minutes later, Alethea, where's your nose? Nose. Where's your ear? Ear. Where's your elbow? She'd forgotten. She hadn't quite associated it. She needed some repetition. So I said, elbow. And I touched hers. Elbow. Obow. Yeah, that's it. You got it. And you know what? About an hour later, Karis was up, and I was doing it with both of them. And I said, Karis, where's your elbow? Well, Karis hadn't learned elbow yet. She was asleep. And Alethea goes, obow. And I said, she's got it. But you know, it's going to take some more repetition still for it to stick, isn't it? I'm going to have to do it a couple more times before it's really going to be there, before it's really second nature, before she can know what her elbow is without even having to think about it. God does that too. And so in the book of Job, so many times now as we've seen conversation after conversation after conversation, we've come across similar concepts and pastor has been preaching those concepts again and again and again, sometimes from a little bit of a different angle, but I'm, I'm... Careful not to avoid that too much. Because though I know you don't want to hear the same thing day in and day out, the Bible is teaching something to us here and we do well to get it into our minds. Justify God, not yourself. Look at me at verses 1 and 2. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Those were his first three companions. And now we switch to a fourth man. 
Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. And so we have a fourth man that we didn't even know was there. This man has sat quietly the entire time, all throughout the time where Job's three companions have been speaking with him. We've gone through three rotations where one of his companions would speak, then Job would speak, then another companion, then Job, then another, then Job. And then that first would go again, the second and the third, and then the first and the second and the third. All three men spoke three times with Job replying each time. But there's been this fourth man sitting in the background the whole time saying nothing. And this is Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite. We're going to see in a moment why he hasn't spoken. But it's time for him to speak up. It says, against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So Elihu is upset at everyone. He's upset at Job and he's upset at these three companions. You know, as Elihu sat listening to the back and forth taking place between Job and his three companions, he recognized the tendency in each of them and there was a negative tendency that was cropping up in each of these each one of these groups. Elihu was angry at Job, the scriptures say. But he wasn't angry with Job the way the other three companions were angry, excuse me, with Job. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they were upset at Job because they perceived him to be hiding some grave sin in his life and he was unwilling to repent. They were angry at Job because Job was clearly being stubborn, and prideful, and he had some sin in his life that he refused to get rid of, and that's why God is punishing him, and he just needs to humble himself. We know that this is false, but that's what his companions are saying. Elihu, however, was upset at Job, not because of any perceived sin in his life, nor for any unwillingness to repent. He was upset because Job, in his suffering was placing all of his effort upon justifying himself, telling his companions, I'm innocent, I've done nothing wrong, and continually trying to justify himself in their eyes instead of simply justifying God. Instead of simply saying, I don't know why this is happening to me, but God is good. And we've talked about this throughout the entire course of this time, throughout the book of Job, is that Job... Though he was indeed innocent, his companions averted his eyes from what he ought to have been doing and what all of us ought to do in the midst of suffering, which is turn glory upon God. And he was stuck trying to justify himself, trying to convince everybody that he was an okay guy, trying to convince everybody that he did, in fact, nothing wrong to deserve all of this and that he wasn't deserving of all of this suffering and that it wasn't his fault. And so he got off track. Instead of using all available strength and effort to remind these men of God's goodness, to place God's worthiness and perfection at the forefront of his suffering, Job was spending his time focusing on himself and attempting to prove that he was not a sinner. And you know, in the midst of suffering, we have a tendency to focus on ourselves, don't we? We have a tendency to turn inward. And you know what that does? That brings about more suffering. Do you know what happens when we turn our eyes inward? 
when we become self-centered in the midst of suffering, suffering turns to depression and anxiety and worry. And the difficulties compound because we're so busy focusing upon ourselves. And Elihu says, Job, I don't know if you're a sinner or not, but I know something. You're trying to justify yourself instead of justifying God. You're trying to say how good you are instead of simply reminding everyone how good God is in the midst of your suffering. You know, there are certain times in life, certain moments and sayings that for whatever reason simply stick in our minds. When I was a child, I had a Sunday school teacher who said something. I remember the church. I don't remember how old I was. I don't remember who the teacher was. I remember that we were in a bus because our church was overflowing. We didn't have enough Sunday school rooms. So our Sunday school class went out to the bus and we met on the bus for Sunday school. I don't remember what passage of scripture he was teaching on. But I remember him saying this. You never need to justify yourself to others. If you're telling the truth and they don't believe you, that's their problem, not yours. I remember him saying that. You never need to justify yourself. If you're telling the truth and other people aren't going to believe you, it's not your problem, it's their problem that they're not believing the truth. And I'll never forget that because I've always been a people pleaser. And as a people pleaser, the concept that when I tell the truth, this truth will stand upon its own merit and I don't need to personally defend the truth if the truth is the truth was very liberating to me. You know, we live in a world where words are twisted. A politician will get up and say something that in context is entirely true. But people will take those words, pull them out of context, twist them, mangle them, and seek to use them against them. And you know it oftentimes works, regardless of the political spectrum. Both sides do this all the time. A pastor will say something which in context is absolutely true. But people listening will, for whatever reason, pick apart his words, overanalyze those words, twist his words, and then use them against him. This happens all the time in our world. But when we tell the truth, the truth liberates us from the necessity of defending ourselves and allows us rather to focus upon God. If Job was innocent, which he was, then why did he need to go about working so hard to convince others that he was innocent when the only one who matters is his innocence before God? He's not going to stand one day before Eliphaz or before Bildad and give an answer. He's going to stand before God and give an answer. So if he's innocent before God, and he knows it, and God knows it, then why should he have to justify himself in the eyes of man? And Elihu says that. He says, Job, you're trying to justify yourself in the eyes of man. Look, if you're innocent before God, then you're innocent before God. And you know, not only is it a useless process to try to attempt to justify ourselves in the eyes of people who aren't interested in us being justified, but it's also very tiring. It's tiring to our spirit. 
His testimony was not better off for his efforts, but what he had done is lost an opportunity to justify God in the midst of his sufferings. And so we learn to justify God, not ourselves. Second, pearl of wisdom, appeal to God, not yourself. Justify God, not yourself. Second, appeal to God, not yourself. Elihu was not just upset at Job. We saw this already in verse 3. He was also upset at Job's three companions. These three men had traveled specifically to comfort Job. When they arrived, seeing Job's circumstances, they determined that Job must have done great sins, he must be a terrible sinner, and so they began to condemn him for his sin. Now here's the thing. None of these three men had seen Job commit any open sin. None of these three men knew of any sin in Job's life. But they were dogmatically condemning him for sin. And it says in verse 3, but they found no answer. In other words, they had no reason. They could not prove, they could not pinpoint sin in his life, but they were saying, Job, you are and must be a terrible sinner because of the things that are happening to you. Elihu says, this is a problem. They found no sin, but they condemned him anyway. Such a scenario. That of judging a man for sins which you don't even know. It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Why would a person look at another person and just assume that he is doing something wrong because of what they see in his life? They look at Job. Job's lost his family. Job's lost his possessions. Job has boils from head to toe. He's in great suffering. Clearly, he must have done something wrong. Clearly, this man must have sinned greatly. How dare any man condemn another for sins which he is not even aware of? But don't we do this all the time? Don't we, godly men and women in the 21st century, regularly step into the shoes of Job's false accusers in regard to other people? I'm going to give a couple of examples this morning. They're going to be fairly benign examples. I could have gotten much more particular. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit work on your hearts as He will. When I was in Florida, there was a person standing on every street corner with a sign. Food, need food, God bless. And you know, I didn't very often give to those people. And one of the reasons why I didn't often give to those people is because, in my reasoning, he's just going to go buy drugs with it anyway. He's just going to go buy alcohol with it anyway. And you know what? I very well might have been right. And probably, eight out of ten times I was looking at someone, I would have been right. But when I said that, when I thought that in my mind and in my heart, Am I not judging a man for a sin that I don't even know he's committed? Well, pastor, he wouldn't be in that situation if he didn't have some sort of problem. What do we know about his situation? What do we presume to know about why he is on that street corner begging? How dare I impose sin upon him that I don't even know that he commits? Do you know why we do that? 
why it is that I would look at a man begging on a street corner and say, well, he's just going to go buy drugs with the money if I give it to him anyway. Well, there are many reasons. Maybe I've just gotten burned enough times. I've seen it happen. As a pastor, and then before being a pastor when I was in high school, I worked with law enforcement. I've seen the dark side of life. I understand many dishonest people in the world. But you know, when we judge people, and not just in this instance, but when we impose sin upon people, we're doing it generally for one of a couple of different reasons. First, we perceive ourselves to be superior because we're not in the situation he is. We're not where he is, so he must have done something wrong that I haven't done. I must be better than he is because he's there and I'm up here. Or perhaps we just need some justifiable reason to ignore him. Even though our hearts as proper reflections of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are crying out to help a man in need. Those are the thoughts of my own heart at least when I see a man on a street corner and I try to justify such things. But you know, there are plenty of other times where we impose sins upon another. Let me give you an example I give all the time. Somebody cuts you off when you're driving. You're driving along, you're driving along, and somebody, eh, and there's, there's 150 miles of open road behind you, and they have to get right in front of you, right? And then they have to slam on the brakes. Happens all the time. And when that happens, immediately, what goes through your mind? They're malicious. They plan that. They're so rude. They're terrible drivers. I wonder if they even have a driver's license. How did they pass the driver? Did they, did they bribe somebody to get their driver's license? What is the deal here? They, have, they probably dreamed about cutting me off last night. They, they have been planning this. They saw me. They have been tracking my car, and they were looking for a way to cut me off all day, right? These sorts of, and of course, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but these things go through our minds. We get angry at that person. But have you ever been the person on the other side of the car? Have you ever been the person that is in the turn lane and you have to get over and you cut a person off and you go, I'm sorry, I didn't, I'm sorry. And you cut them off. You're not being malicious. You're not a terrible driver. But isn't that what they become the minute they cut you off? And you know, you become that in their mind the minute you cut them off. Are we not judging people's hearts, judging their motives, judging their intentions, even though we have no idea why they cut you off? Even though we have no idea whether it was malicious, maybe they didn't see you, maybe you were in their blind spot, maybe they're having a bad day, maybe they're a little tired, you don't know what the situation is. But are you not judging their motives and actions? See, we do this all the time, we just don't think about it. Perhaps you have imposed sin upon a parent because their children have rebelled against God. Perhaps you have imposed sin upon a church member because they're aware of a movie reference or lyrics to the song and you don't believe that song to be righteous. There are many ways in which we impose sins upon others without actually knowing their heart or actions. We appeal to our limited knowledge to condemn men for perceived actions. You know, the church of God, this assembly of believers, has been given great spiritual authority upon this earth. 
According to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, according to 2 Corinthians 3, 14, God's church has the authority to withhold fellowship from one who is not obeying the Word of God. According to 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, according to Titus 1, verse 13, God's church has the authority to publicly rebuke believers and false teachers for open sin and heresy. We have these authorities given to us by God as His church. But this authority has been given by God in accordance with the manifest fruit of unrighteousness before Him. The manifest fruit of disregard for the Word of God. But God has never, ever given any man the authority to judge another man for sins that we think he's doing. To judge a man for implied sin. Or to impose presumed sins upon a man because of the circumstances of his life. You cannot look at a man's circumstances and assume upon his sins God hasn't given us the authority or privilege to do such a thing. But quite often in our hearts, these are the so-called sins that we judge men for. And it's wrong. It's wicked. And we must not do it. Lesson number one, justify God, not yourself. Lesson number two, appeal to God, not yourself. Lesson number three, the third pearl of wisdom from this passage, learn from God, not yourself. Let me begin reading in verse four, and let's read down to verse 10. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled, and Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, They should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in a man, excuse me, there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore I said, hearken to me, I will also show you mine opinion. Elihu found himself in an interesting spot here. He was the youngest of these men. Now culturally, reasonably, and logically, he had no business speaking. These men clearly could work this situation out. There were four men, all older than he was, all with more experience than he had Clearly between the four of them, they can figure this out. He should not even have to speak. But what happens when the older men are not the wiser? Should Elihu simply keep his mouth shut and let these men spout false truths simply because they're older than he is? Well, certainly not. Elihu stated in verses 7 through 9 that they should indeed speak, that those who are older should indeed be the ones to teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man. And then he says in verse 9, Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Wisdom is wisdom regardless of its source. And the oldest among us are not always the wisest among us. 
Godly wisdom is not always about age and experience. When the age and experience compels those men to cast off truth in favor of their years. When a person says, because I'm old, I am wise. Because I have experience, I am wise. Instead of, because I know God's word, I am wise. Well then, that wisdom that perhaps comes with age and experience might very well be false wisdom. And so we see that divine wisdom is not necessarily tied to earthly factors. Youth has always taken upon itself the reputation of folly, hasn't it? And I think rightfully so. The psalmist asked God in Psalm 25, verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth. Days of young men and women are typically characterized by rash decisions, impulsive behavior, and selfish motives. Even when these things are tempered by the Holy Spirit, even when they are tempered by careful training, it is still to be understood that the years of one's youth are particularly susceptible to sin, to errors in judgment, and to foolish behavior. But just because the human condition of youth lends itself to folly, this does not mean that youth are useless to God or devoid of wisdom. It does not mean that a young person cannot properly hear and understand the Word of God, much less properly apply it to their hearts. On the contrary, Solomon told young men in Ecclesiastes 12.1, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Paul warned Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth. Because godly wisdom is not bound by age or experience. We are a church with many young people. In fact, the church leans to be younger in its average age than older in its average age. You have a church with a young pastor. The very framework of our church, however, operates with the understanding as a non-age segregated church that age and experience are not the only factors to consider when one thinks of spiritual maturity and capacity to serve the Lord. The amount of godly wisdom you possess is limited only by your personal willingness to submit yourselves to the Word of God and to allow God to use you. So the lesson is this. Learn from God, not from yourself. Experiences are good. Experiences are important. As a matter of fact, my, since I've become a pastor, it's been nearly two years now, my experiences have taught me many things that I had never found or come across simply by studying the Word of God. I've learned much through experience. They are good, these experiences. They are important. Experience is, without a doubt, a tremendous teacher. But if a young man or a young woman can learn from the Word of God those lessons that you or I had to learn by experience, that's wonderful. This should not draw scorn. This should draw thanksgiving. Word to God, our young people could learn everything they need to know through the wisdom of the Word of God 
before experience had to be their teacher. Would to God they could avoid some mistakes by reading and applying the words of this book before they had to say, yeah, let me tell you from experience, you don't want to go there. Would to God that would be the case. And I know as parents in this room, that is our desire. So as we think about Elihu's statements this morning, I read to you the other part of this chapter already in our scripture reading. We need to justify God, not ourselves. We need to appeal to God, not ourselves. We need to learn from God, not ourselves. And as we close, I'd like us to consider one more thing from this chapter. It's not a part of our outline. But I would like to highlight verses 17 through 20. Look at them with me. I said, I will answer also my part. I will also show mine opinion. For I am full of the matter. The spirit within me constraineth me. Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person. Neither let me give flattering titles unto man. For I know not to give flattering titles. In so doing, my maker would soon take me away. We know simply from the fact that <clears throat> excuse me, there are 31 chapters in the book of Job before Elihu speaks that he is not being impatient here. He is not being impulsive in his response here. He is not being impetuous. He is not blurting out the first thing that came to his head. He has thought through this. He is to the point where he's overflowing. He says here, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. The idea there in ancient culture, what they used to do is they used to take their wine and pour it into wineskins. These would be leather bottles. And they would pour wine into new leather bottles because when you seal off that wine, it's going to let off fumes. And as it lets off those fumes, that wine bottle is going to expand. And if you were to take that wine and put it into a leather bottle that had no ability to expand, it wasn't supple, it wasn't soft, it would burst. Or if there was too much pressure in the leather because of the fumes, it would burst. And he said, that's what I am. I am like wine in one of these bottles that's about ready to burst because it's, I'm so full of what needs to be said here. I don't know if you've ever been there. Someone's been saying something, you know they're wrong, and you just want to overflow with with a response. That's what Elihu was saying here. He's not being foolish. He's not being impetuous. Excuse me. He is being passionate. And as we close, I just want to remind you that passion is a good thing. Never be afraid to be passionate for the things of God. You know, we have a fairly subdued church here. Oftentimes when missionaries come, I have to assure them that they did a fine job. They'll tell a joke or they'll start getting excited and they're not going to hear a lot of amens from this group and they're probably not even going to hear a lot of chuckles from this group. I got a chuckle from someone down here this morning when I was saying something about the elbow and that's pretty impressive for this group to get a chuckle. You know, we're, we're a fairly quiet, subdued group. I think that that is in many ways a good thing. I appreciate that in fact I believe it is an admirable quality to our church. Admirable, excuse me. 
you know, we can have joy without needing to be super expressive. We can express happiness without overt expression. But may I just encourage you, do not allow yourself to think that passion for God is not allowed in God's church or God's people. Do not allow yourself to get to the place where you feel the necessity of subduing the passion that you have to serve God individually. We serve God. We praise God. And in a manner that is controlled, that is reverent, that is appropriate, that is fine. But I hope and I pray that there are people in this room that have a true passion. That when you hear the songs that are sung, that when you hear the preaching of God's Word, that when you read the, the Word of God, that when you hear the prayers of God's saints, that there is indeed an excitement and a passion in your heart, even if it never quite makes it out of our lips in this church. Elihu is a man that truly wanted to stay silent, but was so passionate about the truth of God's Word that he was unable to remain silent any longer. The prophet Jeremiah had an experience like this. You may recall in Jeremiah 20, he said that I will speak God's name no more, but God's word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. He said I couldn't contain it. I had to speak. The apostles of Jesus Christ, as they stood before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin said, preach Christ's name no more. They said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Passion is not the enemy of biblical Christianity. On the contrary, passion is the very heart of service to God. Wisdom about wisdom. Solomon said in Proverbs 3 verse 13, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. He said in Proverbs 4 verse 7, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting get understanding. Many of you have probably heard these verses over the past few weeks. May God help us to be men, women, and children who are full of godly, biblical wisdom.